0: You're listening to KRUI 89.7 Iowa City. Welcome to Bijou Banter, produced by the Bijou Film Board, a student-run organization at the University of Iowa, dedicated to the exhibition of provocative and engaging cinema. Since 2013, Bijou has assisted with the programming and operation of Film Scene, a nonprofit cinema in downtown Iowa City. As a disclaimer, all of the opinions expressed during Bijou Banter are those of the hosts and our guests. And not those of KRUI or the University of Iowa. In this week's show, we'll be discussing three films that are coming soon to film scene. Our lineup includes Ghostbusters, which, in honor of its 30th anniversary, opens at film scene on October 24th. Next, we'll be discussing another classic from the 80s, Little Shop of Horrors, which plays this Saturday night, October 11th at 11 p.m., as part of Bijou After Hours. Finally, we'll be discussing Hannah Arendt which plays Tuesday, October 14th, at 7 p.m. as part of Bijou Film Forum. Scott Soltzner, a graduate student in the University of Iowa's Department of History, will be joining us during our third segment to discuss the film. Before we begin to banter, I should introduce my co-hosts. We have Catherine Steinbach, the Programming Director of the Bijou Film Board. Welcome, Catherine. Hi, glad to be here. And Changmin Yu, also a member of the Bijou Film Board. Welcome, Changmin.
1: Hi, everyone.
0: I am Leah Vonderheide, the executive director of the Bijou Film Board. I should also mention that all three of us are film studies PhD students in the Department of Cinematic Arts at the University of Iowa. Let's start with our first film, Ghostbusters, Ivan Reitman's quintessential 80s comedy and enduring franchise from 1984. There's so much to love about this film, but I'm hoping, Changmin, that you can give us a jumping off point for our discussion.
1: All right. First of all, for breaking news, on Twitter today, Paul Fick just confirmed uh, Ghostbusters 3, and they are going to, there's going to be a female cast in these Ghostbusters. So nice. that's...
0: Wait, four females?
1: Yeah. That's
0: Wow, we've arrived.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> we've done it.
2: It's yeah. over.
1: <laughs> so I don't know if I have anything to add to this film. Uh, this is one of the films you that you saw in your childhood and left an undeniable impression. Unfortunately, I didn't see this film until a few years ago when I came here to the States. It was also during the Halloween season. I find the beginning of this film quite interesting. The first film, uh, the first scene is set in the New York Public Library. There we have an old lady Fenton that causes a ruckus. Words and sentences that reside in the books are dormant spirits waiting to be reawakened. But our heroes, intrigued as they might be by these supernatural manifestations, actually run away from the library because a single scream of the phantom. This seems to me the reason that this film is still so fun. It frustrates our expectations in a super hilarious way. They create chaos as they go, pretty much like Doombringers who cost you a lot of money. Plus, we have Bill Morris' deadpan, deadpan humor that always puts everything into a comedic perspective when things get too serious with his colleagues. Ghostbusters, in a sense, has no character development at all. All we see are these discrete narrative segments, and an impending doom. Every segment contains something that can make you laugh by emphasizing the seriousness of their business, which is saving the world from devils, and the clownish way they choose to deal with it. Leah and Catherine, you grew up with this film, and I believe you have seen this film for a thousand times everywhere in every stage of your life. So how does it feel to revisit the film?
2: It feels great. I just want to say that <laughs> I love Ghostbusters. Uh, I love Ghostbusters two. I will love Ghostbusters three. I'm pretty sure. Um, I think it, it's one of these films that it's just so comforting. Um, it, despite the fact that it's like a pseudo horror movie in a, in a way, like it's it's not very scary and it's so comforting in its, um, I don't know, just the personalities. Um, are very, very familiar and very
0: hilarious. So I actually have not seen this film thousands of times. And in fact, it was too scary for me when I was a kid. So I hadn't (laughs) seen it. um, I mean, I find still that first scene in the library (laughs) when they come around the corner of the bookcases and the creepy old lady ghost is reading silently and hovering above the card catalog, Um, And then sort of turns into something even scarier. I mean, I I find that to this day terrifying, Um, and it haunts my dreams. Uh, But because of all the time you spend in
2: libraries, (laughs) I
0: do. I'm like the only person up in the stacks in the main library. I think. um, Yeah, but I, I, I. So I have only seen this film maybe two or three times in its entirety. Um, But it did feel great to watch it, um, despite its scariness this past week again. And um, it just has to do with a great ensemble cast. I think anytime you have sort of four people together with some witty banter, or three people. (laughs) 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 I apologize. Um, You you can't go wrong. I mean, Bill Murray is just a delight in this movie. Um,
1: So, Well, let's talk about Bill Murray's character and how he's, He is different from all other more serious characters in the film. He didn't study. He didn't conduct serious researches. The only thing he probably wants to do in his life is to get laid. But he's also witty. He asks the questions we audiences want to ask. So how do you interpret his character in this film? Well, he's
2: he's the charisma. Like every uh friendship group and research group evidently <laughs> has this like charismatic character who like brings a, a strange a strange dynamic and strange side I don't know I think that the best stuff is just his like absolute need to have so much attention at, at every time <laughs> like he's he's the scientist but he just wants to be and like Sigourney Weaver's character says he wants to be a game show host even though He's a scientist, (laughs) but I think that he likes the authority of, of being a scientist, right? There's that, um, great line, the back off, man, I'm a scientist. It's, (laughs) there's so much like that. He just, I think he likes methodology, but he likes also just being very disruptive and anti-authority. So I don't
0: know. I do think it's true that he ends up being the conduit for the spectator, the film spectator, to say, "Okay, I mean, we're just going to have to take it on face value that ghosts exist, that you can see them, that scientists have in a university developed a system whereby they can capture the ghosts." Like you have to sort of accept so many things very quickly at the beginning of this film, and all of his sort of quips and one-liners, and the things that he verbalizes, and Ends up making that a comfortable, easy transition that we can kind of go on this ride with everybody um, because Bill Murray is there constantly verbalizing the obvious, like, uh, you know, the goo is gross and (laughs) like, it feels so funky. Yeah, like he's just saying all of the things. I got slime. (laughs)
1: Yeah,
0: Yeah, exactly. So I think that that's a, a crucial character just in terms of the way the film works with its audience.
1: Yeah, definitely. But, like, why does this film become a classic? I mean, on the Wikipedia page, people say this was and still is a cultural phenomenon. And as an outsider, I cannot fully grasp the cultural significance of this film. So, why is it so popular? And in what ways would you say this is an important film?
2: Well, there, I really, the more times I watch, um, these films, I feel like I noticed the, you know, the New York camaraderie, um, which I think definitely had a, a huge upturn during this period of time, you know? Um, I think that even maybe partially because of these films, this this idea of the kind of, um, like, I love how insane and terrible and yet inspiring the city is. <laughs> because really, the, like the camaraderie makes no sense because the whole movie is like kind of about all of the bad vibes and all of the terrible (laughs) things that have happened in New York city to cause all of these hauntings and ghosts and apparitions and, and terrible things. Um, but, and yet there's this kind of sense that people come together, even though there's these, this terrible toxic background, you know? Um, so maybe that's kind of part of it. This, this definitely kind of New York centric, um, camaraderie, but certainly I think it's, I mean, all of these comedians were pretty much well established and, and, you know, kind of on their way up in the kind of world of comedy. And, um, the, the writing is really solid. I think that it it just, it's just like a fun movie where you get to spend time with these comedians, I think. And then tapping into this kind of maybe New York centric thing with this kind of SNL cast kind of thing, you know, New York and SNL cast doing, they're just doing wacky stuff. Mm -hmm. I don't know.
0: I would agree. I think that, um, I I mean, I don't, New York hadn't really begun its rebuilding phase in this period, but it is sort of, it's fun that it's treating it comically. And we actually see that, I think, in Little Shop of as well. Like, oh, New York's a mess, but that's okay. Like, we'll be fine. Um, which it may explain why it sort of lives on, because New York did have its renaissance in the 90s and um, has now, you know, had further travise and has overcome again and again and again. So maybe there's always going to be something there that people come back to. The other thing that I think is just fantastic about this film is how sort of blatant all of the sort of Reaganite ethos (laughs) is just pervading the film. Just everything (laughs) is like about... Business and how, like the businessman can conquer all, and it's fine if you mortgage your house. Like the smart smart businessman is going to make all that money back up, and the EPA is evil. I mean, (laughs) government agencies are just the worst, and they don't know what's going on, and they're just egomaniacs looking to shut down great small businesses.
2: (laughs) It's just so So literally protecting the morals.
0: Yeah, it's (laughs) so it's just like this outrageous um, eighties. pro-business propaganda, I think.
1: I think although there's uh, a certain feeling of camaraderie in this film, but I would say, I mean, these three scientists didn't really get along. Like their personalities are so different from each other. And I feel like this is uh, the director or this group's take um, on New York because I feel like there's certain... Uh, cynicism hidden behind its innocuous appearance, like, like its depiction of the public and its depiction of the media. Like, people are crazy for this mad scientist, but they don't really know why. Like, oh, these guys are ghostbusters. They are great, but like, uh, we don't really know. We don't really need to know how these science works. Like we, we only need to follow their appearance on the media. So I feel like there's these kind of uh like hidden under these, I know, comedies or jokes, right?
2: Oh yeah. Oh yeah. There's, well, there's that great montage, uh, which I think that I have indeed showed my students when talking about montage. (laughs) You're welcome. This is how it's done. (laughs) Um, That great, where they're getting famous and they're covering time magazine and they're on Larry King live and all of this stuff like where they just take off, but, but there's no like kind of why or wherefore, like, it's just sort of like, Oh, they've got, okay. Attention. (laughs) <laughs> and attention, attention, attention. Um, but there's, there's kind of, it's just like it has its own momentum. And I think that there's certainly a commentary about that that's going on because we don't really see them particularly, particularly doing a great job. You know, I mean, they're doing what they're doing, but they're ca- like causing so much havoc, you know, while they're doing <laughs> their job. So um, I don't know. I think that, yeah, there is certainly um, a big media cynicism hidden in there too. But I think that certainly the fact that the guys don't get along, I think that they get along together because they're all outsiders, right? They're oh, not yeah. taken seriously and that's how they can bond together. All of them have like wacko personalities and hobbies. Um, so that like somehow molds them together. Know. Yeah.
1: But to get more serious, I feel like we have to talk about gender representations in this film. I mean, it's so fun to, to <laughs> look at this film in this way because ghosts are very, very eroticized in this oh, yeah. film. And if like, you're into
0: Sigourney Weaver, circa 1984.
1: <laughs>
2: oh, yeah. <laughs> well, there's also the ghost um, that, like, comes at Dan Aykroyd's character when he's yes. dreaming. Mm-hmm. Re- or is it oh, it's a dream? Oh, my gosh,
0: it's... Well, we
2: don't really know, yeah, we right? we don't really know. It's, it's ambiguous. <laughs> no, I
1: forgot about that. Yeah. So I don't know. I feel like because Singony Weaver's character, like when she is possessed by a ghost, she throws herself to anyone who claims to be the king master. <laughs> and, and the ultimate scoundrel in the, in the film is a red-eyed succubus covered with ice glazing. Like, so it's... I would say it's a troublesome, troubling gender representation, right?
0: Well, I mean, we all know that women are the downfall of civilization. So I think it's. <laughs> I mean. It's no big leap. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah I mean it's troublesome, uh yeah, and that four men have to sort of bring her down in this very sort of fiery blaze of glory and and of course get the girl, of course Bill Murray gets the girl sort of storyline it's 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 ridiculous, but nothing that Hollywood genre films haven't delved into before
1: well, I think that's the one of the reasons people are talking about bringing a female into. Uh, the sequel, because yeah. that's important to see things from a female perspective, right?
0: yeah, I mean, I had not heard that surprisingly, I had not been following my Twitter feed or that their Twitter feed. <laughs> I don't know how Twitter works um but that I'm thrilled, I'm totally thrilled, um and we should end on that note, actually, so again, Ghostbusters opens at film scene on october twenty fourth in honor of its thirtieth anniversary. For a complete list of showtimes, check out FilmScene's website, icfilmscene.org. After a quick break, we'll be back to discuss Little Shop of Horrors.
1: Support for KRUI is brought to you in part by The Broken Spoke, who, in addition to offering a wide selection of bicycles, provide bike assembly and maintenance services at their Iowa City location, 602 South Dubuque Street. For more information, visit TheBrokenSpoke.com or call
0: 319-338-8900. Welcome back to Bijou Banter on KRUI Iowa City. This is a show dedicated to discussing films showing locally at Scene. Let's move on to our second film, Little Shop of Horrors is a 1986 musical meets horror meets comedy film about a small flower shop set in the 1960s slums of New York City. The Struggling Shop is owned by Mr. Mushnick, played by Vincent Gardenia, whose two employees include klutzy and credulous Seymour, played by Rick Moranis, and the girl of Seymour's dreams, timid and squeaky-voiced Audrey, played by Ellen Green. When Seymour puts his recently purchased strange and interesting plant in the shop window, business starts booming. Hordes of customers are drawn to the store to see the plant Seymour has affectionately named Audrey 2. Unfortunately, Seymour soon learns that Audrey 2 has a very particular appetite. This little plant isn't interested in sunshine or rain. Instead, Audrey 2, or 2 for short, is only satiated with human blood. Therein lies the horror and comedy of this strange but certainly interesting film. Delightfully devilish characters round out this gruesome story, including a violent and sadistic dentist named Oren, played by Steve Martin, channeling Elvis, I think, and an enthusiastic, masochistic man named Arthur Denton, played by Bill Murray in a single scene that almost steals the entire show. In fact, the more morally corrupt a character is in this film, the more likable I believe he is, including the carnivorous plant himself. So I ask, do you, Catherine and Chongmin, agree with me on this point, or do you find yourselves rooting more for Seymour and Audrey?
2: No, I think that you're right. I, I forgot, I hadn't seen this movie in a little while, and the I Am a Dentist song with Steve Martin, I'm just like... Sold. I'm just so sold by this hilarious character, and he's so sadistic and terrible. And the song is, is just filled with terrible things. Um, but I just I love like every minute that he's on screen, and it obviously you know is very problematic because he is actually being a terribly abusive boyfriend to Audrey. Um, but his character is is so like. I don't know. It's certainly super pastiche. It is. I think he is trying to be Elvis, um, but I'm
0: I'm confused. Um, yeah, and why he would choose Elvis as the way to channel this really grotesque character. Yeah, I'm confused by that artistic choice as well. Yeah, <laughs>
2: <laughs> maybe it's just like our '80s view of grotesque Elvis, like the later Elvis. Um, meeting or, anyway, um, I have a lot to say about all of the post-war culture in this film. <laughs> um, but uh, but yeah, no, I think that um, certainly Steve Martin is amazing, and then um, and then Bill Murray is super awesome, and they would make a wonderful couple. I think in this film.
1: <laughs> I know. I feel like. This plane is so cute in the film. Like, <laughs> it's so, it's cutely sinister. Like, it moves around, it jumps, and you feel like, oh, it's so cute, it's like a little kitten, that sort of thing. <laughs> so I, I feel like he, it is definitely more likable than other characters in the film. You just cannot deny that, right?
0: Do you, And you like it even as it grows into its... Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I would keep using the word "cute" um, as it grows, <laughs> but I do. I, I am taken in by this character. Um, it is a rather—it's a comic film, but it has a lot of depressing themes. Um, Catherine, you were starting to mention these, including poverty, uh, domestic abuse, substance abuse, uh, and of course the cycle of exploitation in consumer society. Obviously, yeah. do you find it problematic that the film br- uh, brings levity to these topics?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that it's trying to, yeah, from the space of of the 80s like try to sp- like poke fun and make absurd the immediate kind of postwar culture, right? Like especially all of this stuff about um about suburbia and um and like gender roles and escaping the the urban space into the suburban space, all of that stuff I find to be like it's it's being made absurd, you know, and I really I like that because it's easier to access these kind of really big issues um, rather than just having them be uh, like a maybe a somber background for for the play. I don't know.
1: I think it's it's important to note that uh, this film is a remake of Roger Corman's early yeah. eponymous film in 1960, and originally the film was. Much heavier, like the ending. They they switched the ending because the original ending was too heavy. Like uh, the original one was about like Audrey sacrificed herself because uh, she wants Seamer to achieve glory and success. And later they cannot control this plant anymore, and this plant or these plants start to invade the United States. And one of the last shots in the original film, uh, is this carnivorous, uh, this dreadful plane climbed um, the statue, a statue of liberty, wow, and conquered the United States. So I feel like, but like, uh, the audience, uh, didn't like it at all. So they. Switch the ending to give it a lighter tone. Like we still see that, oh, this little plant growing in front of their house. Mm-hmm. But like, it's not a big threat.
0: Yeah, I I kind of love that original ending. And that's the ending that's still used in live productions. That never actually changed in the sort of, if you go see it in community theater, Um mm-hmm it still uses that original ending, which is much darker. And for some reason, apparently works in a live theater production, but just wasn't, people weren't ready for it in the, in the 1986 version. Yeah. I didn't know that. I, I knew that there was the Corman film,
2: but, um, I didn't know that it, it was like a super crazy, dark, um, ending. And I, yeah, wow. I didn't know that. Um, I think it,
0: that uh, a new release of the DVD just last year, perhaps, you mm-hmm. can see, because they actually shot the whole ending, and then they tested it with audiences, and they were like, no. no, no, <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> so now, like, for the first time, you can get the, the, the special sort of version and actually see it, which would be interesting, of course. Yeah. Let's talk about the plan itself. Um, Tui. Uh, So live productions of Little Shop of Horrors typically require four to five iterations of Tui, representing the growing plant from seedling to psychopath, and all are operated by puppeteers. The same is true of Tui in the 1986 film, which was directed by Frank Oz, who eschewed fancier special effects in favor of maintaining the original off-Broadway aesthetic of the show. So this has me thinking about puppets in theater and film. And why and how we continually see renewed approaches to puppetry in both venues, from Julie Taymor's The Lion King to Avenue Q, from each and every Muppets movie to unexpected puppet cameos in films such as Forgetting Sarah Marshall and even Being John Malkovich. So I'm just wondering, what's, what's the appeal of puppets?
1: Well, I feel like puppets are so great for like comedy effect on the one hand, and uncanny effects on the other hand, yeah. right? So, I mean, in this film, it's a perfect combination because in, in those puppets movies, we only see the com- comedic aspect of its use. But like in other films, like just the new film, Annabella, it, it's all about this uncanny, creepy feeling when you look at dolls right so oh, the
0: horror film yes. okay yeah
1: so i feel like you could see how these two aspects work in this film and i think it's actually great
0: yeah that's true
2: yeah i i can't help but think of my favorite puppet puppet-esque puppety uh movie <laughs> <laughs> from growing up the dark crystal um which i just i mean it's a fairly dark story um and I really loved it for like, it's so tactile. It's not necessarily like, I mean, there, there is some comedy that that's like in kind of absurdity, especially with movement, like how, how puppets just like, I can't move like people, uh, that's hilarious. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but it's also, I don't know, there's something about their, their texture and their ability to kind of have their own little environment, um, that I thought was really intoxicating about The Dark Crystal, um, even though it's, you know, a pretty heavy movie to to have puppets, you know, be all of the main characters. Um, it was really immersive in that way and allowed them to kind of really inhabit um, a space rather than just be kind of the the comic relief all the time. Um, but yeah, I don't know. There's something about uh, Audrey II in Little Shop of Horrors that is about the kind of Weird textures and things that you just feel like you can really reach out and touch, and not—it's not CGI, and it's not—you know—I um, don't know. It, it, there's something about like, especially the kind of like gaping maw of Audrey, <laughs> who, where, they, where they keep like zooming in on the kind of close-ups of the inside of the mouth, and mm-hmm. you're like, oh boy. Um, <laughs> Uh, and it's very plant-like, so it's it's very like familiar in that way. But it's but it's also just really creepy. Um, so yeah, I would say that texture and and feel are a really big part of the puppet appeal.
1: Well, and I think puppets are great because they don't have any psychological depth. Like, uh, it, you cannot really get serious with them in the films, right? Like, it has to be. Uh, a certain kind of comedy. Like when you see someone talking to his own Muppet or his own puppet, it has to be fun. And because- You should watch The Dark Crystal.
2: Because <laughs> there's some serious soul going
1: on
2: in those puppets. I just want to-
1: <laughs> I mean, I think the, the crucial difference here is uh, how puppet or how those uh, look like humans, like- uh, When they look like humans, they get very, very scary.
0: Yeah, and I, I suppose there's something there about, you know, you know in some of those first versions of Tui when he's small that it's the actor's hand, you know, sort of in there just doing, you know, and then <laughs> snapping, and the and snapping the mouth. Snapping the mouth. <laughs> and also then he's feeding his hand to his other hand. I mean, there's yeah. just something sort of comical about that whole <laughs> process and that you know but in the larger versions a whole person is crawling inside of that thing to operate it um yeah maybe it's just some sort of like odd uncanny human eats human kind of bizarro
2: (laughs) i don't know humans using weird technology to consume other
0: humans (laughs) (laughs) there's something there something there we'll keep working on that (laughs) all right so let's end on that note Little Shop of Horrors plays at film scene this Saturday night, October 11th at 11 p.m. as part of Bijou After Hours. For more information on Bijou After Hours, check out Bijou's website, bijou.uiowa.edu. Before we move on to our next film, let's check on the weather. It's currently 65 degrees in Iowa City. This evening, there's a fifty percent chance of rain. A low of forty-seven degrees. Tomorrow, thirty percent chance of rain. High of fifty-nine. You're listening to Bijou Banter on KRUI, Iowa City. Bijou Banter is a show dedicated to discussing films showing locally at Film Scene. During our third segment, we'll be discussing Hannah Arendt a 2012 biopic by the German filmmaker Margareta von Trotta. Joining us today to discuss the film is Scott Soltzner, a graduate student in the Department of History at the University of Iowa. Scott's focus is modern Europe and specifically modern German history. Welcome, Scott. We're so happy to have you here.
3: Hello, all. Wonderful to be here.
0: <laughs> Before we begin our discussion of Hannah Arendt, Catherine, perhaps you can give us some background. Yes, thank you.
2: Uh, first of all, I'd like to place this film in some context. It's one of many films um, by Marguerite Bontrada that deal with women in the realm of political action and thought. Bontrada is a major player in the new German cinema movement and has made it an imperative in her cinematic and televisual productions to show the complex forces that women confront in post-war intellectual as well as pragmatic concerns. Barbara Sukova the lead actress in the film, has collaborated with Vontrada several times to bring the lives of famous and revolutionary women to screens. Hannah Arendt, as a philosoph- uh, philosophical figure and as a film, is all about curiosity and the quest for understanding amidst the horrors of totalitarianism. This film gives us a fairly narrow window of Arendt's life during her attendance at and reporting of the Adolf Eichmann trial in Jerusalem for The New Yorker magazine. The film makes liberal and fascinating use of the actual 1961 trial footage of this Nazi, quote-unquote, paper pusher. Arendt was a German-Jewish refugee who, according to this film, absolutely needed to attend this trial. Her curiosity and her beliefs needed to confront it. But the film's focus on this era also wants us to empathize with a thinker who is struggling to communicate her ideas properly to those around her and abroad. Her famous phrase, The Banality of Evil which she uses to interpret Eichmann's character and role in Holocaust atrocities, as well as many like him, electrifies those in her intellectual circles as well as popular culture at large. Very many are offended by her articles and the statements within about Eichmann, as well as global complicity with Hitler's regime. Much is also made of her alleged affair with uh, philosophical titan Martin Heidegger, a known Nazi Party member, And this film delves carefully into Arendt's strangely conflicted emotional world. But, like any biographical film, we need to be careful of melodramatic characterizations, as well as overly heroic depictions. I'm interested to hear if my fellow banterers, and Scott as well, um, what you thought about this kind of depiction. Was it perhaps overly wrought emotionally, or very aggrandizing, or... Was this truly kind of a, a historical exploration?
3: Oh, that's that's a tough first question. Um, <laughs> I mean, there are any number of, I think, lens through which you can view this film and talk about it. Um, and to choose one is necessarily to leave some others off to the side. But I do think that no matter which one you are, it's a very careful film. That's how I read it. Um, So if we're thinking of it as careful in the context of potentially maudlin or melodramatic, I feel like Fontrada is very careful, again, to balance any sort of sentimentality or um, kind of hagiographic depiction of Arendt with um, someone pushing back against it, whether this is uh, her husband or her friends um, in Israel or New York. But both, which, all of, all of them, there's trouble with them as well for speaking from a very totemic position about this is what they represent and the view they mm-hmm. represent. I mean, I, ret- I think of then, in light of this question, the beginning and the end, both centering on her smoking while exhausted and right on the edge of sleep. And that seemed like a potentially heroic Image there of the tireless thinker. Mm-hmm. Um, kind of, you know, she can't even rest. And at the beginning, you just, the cigarette's dangling there, and you just imagine maybe what's going on in her head, and it sets her up in this position that might be kind of laudatory. But at the same time, um, I think it's neverly never overly emotional. So I guess, yeah, to answer that question, I would say it walks a pretty thin line between kind of some sort of biopic objectivity and any sort of mm, heroic depiction of her. I mean, I don't know. Is that how you read it or differently?
2: I mean, I think that you're right in that she's characterized always, almost always, I guess, um, in confrontation with other people. Like, she's always arguing and in the moments when she's not arguing, yeah, there are these quiet moments. But you know that they're not quiet moments. Right. They're, I mean, there's always the smoking. The smoking is very, <laughs> very present in this film. Um, but but it's also this kind of grinding of gears all the time. And and so it is a very, I think, um, a careful and maybe um, situated representation. <laughs> Her. I don't know. What did you guys think?
1: Well, well, I feel like I have my doubts toward this film, but I'm not saying it's a bad film. It's a good film. But like, um, presenting various views uh, doesn't mean that it's neutral. Mm. Like, because obviously the film chooses to side with Hannah Arendt from the beginning to the end. Like, He is the righteous figure in this film. And he, the film definitely wants us to believe the validity of her claims especially in this film I mean if you put this film in uh, von Chota's career I wouldn't be surprised that he uh, she gives us this kind of de- depiction of Hannah Arendt because von Chota is a feminist and he always uh, she always tries to to uh, present a more more positive female figure in cinema. I would say that f- since the late 1970s. So so that's why I have my doubts about this film. I
3: yeah, and I think it's difficult not to view this in light of their f- collaboration right before this on Hildegard von Bingen, who is a 12th century female saint, with Sukova mm-hmm. playing the lead here again, and in a very for a woman who has a kind of outsized both political and religious influence, not to talk too much about that movie, Visions, but um, <laughs> I think they're of a piece, what's going on here. Um, for a woman who has this kind of, as I said, outsized political influence, you see you're talking with the emperor, um, and also religious, a religious voice in a position where women didn't necessarily, um... But at the same time, that voice is dependent upon her having these ecstatic visions and the film never really is ambiguous about the validity of those for anyone. Seeing it. So that kind of ambiguity towards its central character, I think, is reflected as well in this film. Um, so I think I agree with you that it's on her side. But I, I mean, if we want to get into it, the interesting relationship is the relationship with Heidegger here. Um, So that a lot depends on what we think of what she's doing, depending on how the film is talking about that relationship. And sometimes I think it is careful, but a lot of times, it's a very dangerous argument. I wouldn't want to say that that's what it's putting forward, but a lot of times the implication the film's making is that she is being, the film wants to say, um, not light on Eichmann or viewing him through a lens. Eichmann becomes a stand-in for Heidegger is Mm -hmm. is the way I read that. Um it's never that explicit, but a few times at one point they keep talking about she's repressing her pain, she needs to express her pain. Um and another time someone, her German Jewish friend, um Hans, says, uh, do you want to forgive him? Um and he's talking about Eichmann, but it's in the context of her relationship with Heidegger. And he says, Do you want to forgive him? And she says, No, I don't. I think he should hang. Um, but at the same time, he sees that he re- sees everything about the way in which she deals with Eichmann and uh, these kind of low level, although we can talk about that because Eichmann is not, um, Nazis through the lens of her relationship with this, with Heidegger. So I don't know. I mean, it's really a, I guess what the film wants us to make of that relationship. And I'm intrigued to hear how you guys might have read the presentation of that.
0: Well, I just want to backtrack one step before we kind of delve into Heidegger. But, um, you know, it's interesting that, uh, Scott, you're talking about this in terms of the film that came before. uh, And I'm not actually familiar with that film. But from, you know, von films in the 70s, like um, The Lost Honor of Katarina Bloom or The Second Awakening of Christina Christaklagos, those films are similar in the sense that you have a central female protagonist who society is using as a scapegoat. And so the film is constructed in a way to sort of unravel woman as scapegoat mentality that we've talked about with Ghostbusters. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> and and, and I think is extremely successful in doing that and I'm wondering if part of the issue here is that we're dealing with such a such a well a real person and such a recent real person and and what does it mean then to try and sort of get her out of sort of the position of um, targeted woman in a very sort of deeply complicated political position rhetorically um so that's what's been running through my mind but certainly we should we should go into uh heidegger and who he was to her and whether this film is trying to is this film trying to draw the parallels too easily do you think or do you think it's doing it carefully to try and say oh maybe she was just thinking about heidegger
2: yeah i mean this is one of my main questions because i think that the the kind of flashback structure we get where we have her like various interactions with Heidegger but they're not um they're not very emotionally tied right like there's a lot of these kind of scenes where she's watching him talk or we have like very like kind of vague physical interactions but not a whole lot of like deeply emotional talk or like super connected you know dialogue so I I'm sort of wondering what this film thinks about will this relationship with Heidegger because there's there's these flashbacks, but I don't know what they are achieving other than drawing this this parallel that um, that it but is left up in in question whether or not this parallel is profoundly effective or just a, a little effective I don't I
1: don't know well they don't even have the intellectual death like because in in those flashbacks Heidegger was always mumbling like thinking this thinking that <laughs> so he
0: That's seems just Heidegger I
1: don't know. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't really want it doesn't really want to like get into these complete complicated arguments right. about Heidegger and so he seems to be a little bit i don't know idiotic or flat <laughs> in that sense because in, in those flashbacks he acts as if he's like a womanizer like to
3: Aran, uh, right? Right. I always understand that as t- screenwriters are terrified of writing philosophers or geniuses because like, now I have to embody genius um, mm-hmm. so <laughs> I will make them therefore really stoic and um, therefore the genius is hidden behind nothing um, but I felt the same way. Those are interesting scenes. Uh, I mean, it depends what you want to consider her attraction to him being based on. The scene where he's in the classroom and he's talking about thought being pointless and action meaning something. I mean, that's, that's a classic post-First World War, World War I intellectual justification for fascism. You know, a lot of intellectuals are drawn to this and that's the just that's what they give you know mm-hmm. action um you see it in italy um with denunzio and you see it with the futurists as well i mean it's so it's there i, I don't know how well that encapsulates heidegger's own views i mean they're there um my, my impression is that their relationship kind of spanned the most overt uh periods of his nazism that it wasn't necessarily something that she would have had to grapple with right away, but it still doesn't give me a strong enough basis to explain the presence, the like the phantom presence of Heidegger in her grappling with Eichmann 40 or 20 years later. Um, And then the, the scene in the forest where, you know, they're talking it out is so kind of cryptic as well in what you want to get out of that. And I guess that was Heidegger. Um, if we know Paul Celan, the Jewish poet as well, I mean, he had a similar kind of reconciliation slash, you know, talk with Heidegger afterwards where he tried to understand Heidegger's approach and some really great poems came out of that, but we're still unclear about what exactly that, that happened there. So I don't understand the exact relationship that Fontrada wanted us to establish between that relationship and Eichmann.
0: Yeah, we should return to that idea um, in a second. Let's take a quick break, and when we return, we'll keep talking with our guest, Scott Soltzner, about Hannah Arendt. Little Village Magazine is Iowa City's free alternative culture magazine. Published once a month, it features articles written by local people. Little Village Live on KRUI brings in local and touring apps to Public Space One for live performances every Thursday at 5 p.m. For more information, go to littlevillagemag.com. Welcome back to Bijou Banter on KRUI Iowa City. This is a show dedicated to discussing films showing locally at Film Scene. We're currently discussing Hannah Arendt with today's guest, Scott Soltzener. So, just going
2: off of what you know, we, where we were kind of leading, um, I think that it's really interesting to think about her, Hannah um, Arendt's um, main argument that she that she tends to uh, pull together regarding Eichmann, this, this person who um, was so embroiled in the kind of um, hierarchy of power that he couldn't think, right? Um, that he could only act, that he couldn't think. Um, which if we're going by this um, scene that we are given with Heidegger um, in the in the classroom, is the opposite, right? So um, is the opposite of his kind of rumination on, on action um, in the world and, and this kind of, you know, oppositional force of thinking, like thinking is, I don't know. So I, I just wanted to know what you guys thought of that, that, that if, her main argument is kind of maybe inspired by this kind of primal moment, right. With Heidegger, (laughs) um, where she's in the classroom and and she realizes like, I I don't agree with that. (laughs) I I don't like that. (laughs) And later it will become clear to me why. (laughs) Um, and, and therefore then she's given this kind of case, but of course that case, um, brings up all of these kind of emotional memories that, that she has to deal with. But, um, but ultimately, she has to kind of make the choice to to go against this kind of maybe blustery figure.
3: I, I, I mean, I think that was ultimately something that I found most fascinating about this as a film because the when most people think of Hannah Arendt, I'm sure they think of the banality of, of evil, and so that's therefore probably the primary reason for this being a film, right? That's the event through which you view her, the access point for the audience here. But it's interesting then because it's um thinking of it, you know, in that sense, it's things have moved on since she made that argument. So this is having a an historiographical discussion whereas most people are already 20 years past that and say like, yeah, there are problems with this. As I mean, there's a very good spate of books in the nineties that came out that dealt with actual ordinary Nazis, you know, not someone like Eichmann, but, you know, you know, lower class or, uh, Germans that are on the front lines and how they felt. And the author of one of those books, Christopher Browning said, um, she had the right type, but the wrong man basically. Um, so it's interesting to see that in, View of, and that's why I ultimately thought that the Heidegger section was necessary because it, considering that that debate might be, you know, gone and over, kind of, um, that that was another, a new frame through which to view this because I think you totally hit on it there, right? If she is drawn to this person who glorifies action at the expense of thought, um,
2: or at least during this period of time he does and, and she remembers this kind of primal. Right, like encounter with him, yeah.
3: Then how? Then how is her like ultimate condemnation of this kind of stupidity and its relationship to evil also a condemnation of her childhood self or her or her philosophical idol and lover, um, or a way to think about him anew? Because it really highlights, brings to the foreground what lack of thought does rather than being something that leads to glorious action, but leads to something with, you know, really banal but evil consequences. So I think it's an interesting frame for it.
0: I found the... So, well, a couple of things. I, one, I wondered with this film, how much von Trotta, Who she made this film for. Mm-hmm. Is this a film for Germans? Is this a film for uh survivors jewish survivors is this a film for uh the new york intellectual elite uh, you know it it seemed like you had to come into this film knowing quite a bit about the circumstances because she was not interested in historical exposé so yeah. it's it's i mean that carefulness that we've been talking about in the way that the story is constructed is ends up just being uh, attention to very, very specific details with absolutely no context around them, I found personally, and not knowing a whole lot about Hannah Arendt. I mean, I think I knew some of the 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 big details, but I don't it's still been very difficult for me to sort of contextualize this film outside of this film. I feel like it made me think I need to do more research on <laughs> who this person is and 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 more about um about the trials and about sort of Eichmann being in Israel and, and what you know what did that all mean to everybody. and I, But the film doesn't, it doesn't really go there.
3: No, and where it does go sometimes that we could talk about is this strange His Girl Friday office in The New Yorker. I mean, those scenes <laughs> were so jarring to me mm-hmm. and the acting so stiff um, that it kind of took me out of everything. I didn't understand who this is for or what those, the kind of, I don't know. Newspapery back talking. It was it was very strange. I had a really difficult time with audience as well, thinking who's the who's the ideal viewer of this film?
0: Yeah. Is it is it sort of like the German response to when Americans make films about Germans, they're just so stereotypical that they are unrecognizable to the average German, and so they've, you know, Von has made a film where like the Americans are just like you've seen them in the movies in the 30s. and
3: I mean, they... that's that's a really interesting thought if we <laughs> think about it from the German perspective. I mean, what Hannah Arendt is in many ways, and again, if we're thinking of this as a, a German film, um, she is one of the last of a very specific breed that are, you know, because of this event, not around much anymore. The highly cultured, um Bildungsbürgertum which is like the German uh a, a lot of times Jewish classically educated um you know uh liberal in this way and that's that kind of cultured German Jewish world was clear and had a lot of influence and a voice and then it's gone um and she is a connection between that and they had a very clear sense of themselves i mean the people that she has around her are these you know, uh, Hans, her friend as well, philosophy student, works with Heidegger, um, and then they're in exile. And in that way, I mean, the audience could be, I mean, this is this is a group that is not there mm-hmm. anymore.
2: Well, I thought about this in terms of like what I've um, heard uh, Werner Herzog uh, say a few times where, you know, New German cinema... Uh, is this thing that's needed because nobody wants to confront the kind of horrors of, of the past and nobody wants to talk in Germany about, uh, about this era. And one of the projects of new German cinema was to kind of try to tackle in artistic ways, this kind of confrontation with the past and and kind of usher in a new future, et cetera, et cetera. Um, So I think that makes sense with, um, with this depiction and with this making, making this into a German film for, for those people who like, who are still unwilling to kind of face these kinds of, um, past debates and, um, and the future ramifications. And, um, and therefore, even though we know that this was such a particular moment and that, um, the kind of banality of evil argument has evolved, you know, um, but that this moment was such a particular one, especially for for Germans in exile and and like reinterpreting what it means to be part of this generation that that could no longer be German truly, right um so maybe it's kind of about Germanness and what Germanness means um in it, like moving forward with this kind of um this kind of conflicted history um where we have, you know, certainly the persecuted creating these um, profound ideas and processes uh, with which to confront the past um, while in exile. I don't know.
1: Um, I think in this film, you could see a very, very interesting dynamics like working there because on the one hand, we have this the universal reasoning, like abstract, philosophical... Uh, Process like uh, talking about ontologies of evil, that sort of stuff. But like on the one, the, on the other hand, we, all these Jewish survivors uh, want her to give them a a wordly or matter of fact style of mm-hmm. reportage. Like they really only want those facts. They don't want any philosophical mm-hmm. abstract arguments. So. Uh, i think at one point in the well, film they want
2: her identity as a jewish person to be first and foremost right not yes. not her identity as someone who's who's trying to understand right like or, that's the big quote is like i want to understand but that's that's they want the kind of um yeah the the emotional and and um you know particular kind of identity presence of jewishness to be the the guiding force you know in, in this particular article since series of articles um anyway sorry
1: well she doesn't i think at one point in the film she she said that she doesn't identify herself as a jew i mean that's not her first concern she wants to be a philosopher to talk about these things so i think that's uh i would say that's a um divergence between
3: herself and all these other like
1: Jews in the film
3: I mean I think that's I think that's a really interesting reading too especially because it falls in line with your larger point about this being an exploration of identity maybe Mm -hmm. and especially a German identity and what that means after you know the rejection of your self uh, um, proclaimed identity by the group you identify with and as embodied in Heidegger too Yeah, and so in that way I kind of feel like the primary, you know, referent for this film is probably Ghostbusters. <laughs> <laughs> Especially its concerns with ghostly identities and such. And yeah. Bill Murray, the end. And because the- Bill Murray.
0: <laughs>
3: <laughs> of course, yeah.
0: There is, a, there is a great sort of moment that happens when she adds almost um, as an aside in her sort of advanced German language class, you know, I was stateless. She like, at, you know, I wasn't just here. I was stateless for, I think, seven years. I don't remember the exact of years. But what, you know, yeah, I think that that is clear sort of what is um, what is your state identity uh, and, and sort of the building and collapsing of nation states and and the people that they, uh, that collapse with them and, and without them. And uh, there's a lot happening there.
3: I mean, and that's reflected in, in the way in which her original core group you, you sense from Germany, these activists, whether her husband or her friend at the New School or her Zionist friend ultimately in Israel, how they're dispersed. And they all are, you know, they could all inhabit these different aspects of German identity, which are potentially, you know, um, there's enough room within Germanness in the 20s and, you know, early 30s for that too exist within Germany itself. But after this period, all of those have to find a new spot. And what does that mean for the way in which they related to each other earlier? And you see ultimately her friend Hans says, I'm done with you. And I think that's why it's a really good point to say that people want her to approach this subject in one way. And after her big kind of courtroom scene at the end where she justifies herself, he's there to say um, that I'm done with you. And you can say you can philosophize what you however you want about this, but Eichmann would have sent you away were you still in the camp when he was there. And that's the way you need to look at this.
0: Yeah. Yeah. All right, guys, let's end on that note. Once again, Hannah Arendt plays at film scene on Tuesday, October fourteenth, at seven PM as part of Bijou Film Forum. A post screening dialogue will take place with Professor Lisa Heinemann from the Department of History and Professor John Durham Peters from the Department of Communication Studies. She's great. For more information about this event, check out Bijou's website, bijou.uiowa.edu. If you're interested in seeing film that challenges, inspires, educates, and entertains in downtown Iowa City, please check out Film Scene and Seeds website, icfilmscene.org. To learn more about the Bijou Film Board's unique and longstanding role in the exhibition, a provocative and engaging cinema in Iowa City, please check out bijou.uiowa.edu. You've been listening to Bijou Banter. Catherine, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Chung Changmin, it's a pleasure as always.
1: The pleasure is all mine.
0: And Scott, thank you so much for joining us today.
1: This was horrible.
3: <laughs> <laughs>
0: I'm Leah and I look forward to more banter next week.